Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, number 30, for October 21st, 2008. Grand Guignol, by Andy Duncan. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. I like Halloween a lot, but I confess I don't love it as much as I did when I was little. Really, a holiday centering around going from house to house getting free candy is just made for kids. Of course, there are also costumes to agonize over. My son is usually content with something straightforward, a firefighter or Spider-Man. My daughter, on the other hand, almost always wants something you don't find at the store. The first year she was old enough, she announced that she wanted to be a black and white cow. I have no idea where that came from, but she was very specific, very definite about it. But that was easy. A white shirt and pants and some stick-on black felt, a tail and a headband with felt ears, and she was set. I barely had to do anything besides warm up the glue gun. The next couple of years were pretty easy, too. But the year she announced she wanted to be an adaphosaur, I told her she was going to have to do most of the heavy lifting. Now, I know you're probably saying to yourself, Why on earth would a nine-year-old girl want to be an adaphosaur for Halloween? And if you're asking yourself that question, you probably haven't seen Walking with Monsters, Life Before the Dinosaurs, but we've seen it a lot. Anyway, she decided that an adaphosaur should be brown, so we got a gray sweatsuit that I dyed brown for her, and then she designed a sail. Adaphosaurs were synapsids, mammal-like reptiles, kind of like Dimetrodon, with a similar sail on their backs, only they ate plants, and Dimetrodons were meat-eaters. And she designed a tail, too, and she drew them on some stiff cardboard we'd dug up from somewhere, and I cut them out. Some Velcro, and she was good to go. Of course, answering the question, so what are you, little girl, was endlessly amusing. The sweatsuit, cardboard, and Velcro construction technique she used for the Adaphastor stood her in good stead the next year when she announced she was going to be a piranha. That one included a huge cardboard head that sat on her shoulders. It had to be duct taped together and then painted, and it remains a high point of family costume design. Today's story is Grand Guignol by Andy Duncan. It first appeared in Weird Tales and was reprinted in his collection, Belutha Hatchie and Other Stories. He was born in Batesburg, South Carolina, and he has a BA in journalism from the University of South Carolina, an MA in creative writing from North Carolina State University, and an MFA in fiction writing from the University of Alabama. He's also a graduate of the Clarion West Writers Workshop. Between degrees, he was a reporter and editor at the Greensboro, North Carolina News and Record. He was a finalist for the 1998 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and his stories have been nominated for Hugo, Nebula, and International Horror Guild Awards. It's read by Frank Key of Hooting Yard on the Air, not to mention several Escape Pod episodes. You can find him at www.hootingyard.org. Grand Guignol by Andy Duncan Max 
Charles is my friend, my brother, my right arm, my most valued assistant, my comrade in glory and trial since before the armistice, and to say anything against him is almost more than I can bear. But today he brought me a sack of eyeballs of which, before God, not one was usable. Stress, love, syphilis, who can say? I am saddened beyond speculation. The instant I hefted the sack, I knew. A director senses these things. Yet, to appease Charles, I dutifully held each eyeball, rolled it in my fingers, inspected it, flung it to the floor. Not one bounced. Not one. Smack, 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 like so many eggs. They surrounded my desk, gazing up at my shame. The climax of A Crime in the Madhouse is so sublime, and to cut corners would be ruinous. The crones cackle, the victim shrieks and writhes, her arms pinned, the knitting needles flash, first one eyeball, then the other is ripped free, they fall to the stage and bounce, roll toward the edge, toward the front row. Ah, what a spectacle with which to launch our 1925 season. But if the eyeballs just plop, plop like clots of pate from a drunkard's cracker, is this what our patrons demand, deserve? Is this theatre? All this I pointed out to Charles, to no avail. Max, be reasonable. You send me for eyeballs, I bring you eyeballs. I bring you three score eyeballs at a good price from the taxidermist in the Rue du Perret. If we keep them on ice, we have enough to last for weeks. We have one less thing to worry about. Do you know, Max, how badly we need one less thing to worry about? I have only one thing to worry about, Charles, and that is my art. I pay you a salary greater than the Premier pays Marshal Patan to worry about everything except my art. And how do you repay me? Max, you kick me, you spit upon me. Max, you smear me with offal. Max, you're a melodrama with no audience and a cast of one. Finally, of course, we embraced, we wept, we kissed like brothers. The stagehand outside the door applauded, and Charles did as he should have done before. He set out for the slaughterers in the Bois de Boulogne. I have high hopes. For the Garden of Torture and the Castle of Slow Death, they provided commendable eyeballs, outstanding in every respect. Also, once, a truly remarkable liver. But I still feel all is not well with Charles. Perhaps I will consult Dr Binet when he calls this afternoon with the latest progress report on the sanity of our resident genius. How I wish he could persuade André to return to the theatre, to come in out of the damp. I'm weary of transacting business with my star playwright in a cemetery. Pages blow away before we've revised them. Surly mourners rout us from tomb to tomb, and André is so easily distracted by the play of light on marble, by the wink of a cherub. In my hour of need, all my comrades go mad. Did Aeschylus suffer so? André I am at home in this city of the dead. I stand on the hilltop and see all around me the spires, the turrets, the battlements of these silent, narrow houses grouped by gravel paths into thickets of grey. I press my palms against their cool gates and peer through the frosted glass at the flowers huddled into slender vases, at the precarious shrines stacked within. 
No balconied block on the Ile de Saint-Louis is more noble than these apartments of bronze and stone. One tomb reminds me of Max's theatre. It is surrounded by a stone deck like a stage, and its angels are large and ridiculous. I sit here and eat my lunch, a cheese quiche and a lemon pastry, bought from a cart propelled by a woman in crepe. I alternate bites of citrus and onion and wonder how rehearsals are going, and then I berate myself for wondering. Max will squat upon the stage and deposit his usual pile of miracles, and the patrons will stumble away fulfilled. Dr. Binet is right to tell me to stay away from that fetid little theatre in the Rue Chaptal. He is acting as my amanuensis, delivering to Max the pages of my next play as they're completed. It is an adaptation of de Maupassant's The Maker of Monsters, which will tax the company's skills with stage deformities. But they may make of it what they will. I no longer care. The true production is the one I envision alone, here in the centre of Père Lachaise. I have no actors to stable, no turnstiles to crank, no boulevardiers to appease. When I'm done writing, the play is over. Charles. While she's on stage being strangled to death, I am in her dressing room laying down a bouquet, or attempting to. Where to leave it? Like all the dressing rooms, this is little more than a closet, a vertical stall. The vanity is a jumble of overturned bottles, opened jars and wadded handkerchiefs, every surface tacky with lipstick, rouge and grease paint. The two chairs are swaddled with layers of evil-smelling costumes, sleeves and bloomers all entwined. The lamp is wearing, at a flirtatious angle, a wig clotted with gore. Finally, I open the shallow drawer of the vanity, insert the clump of stems and close the drawer so that the blooms jut out horizontally, sagging like broken fingers. It will have to do. I dare not be seen. Max would flay me alive, as in the climax of The Horrible Experiment. Fraternising with the enemy, he would trumpet. Max suspects all actors of ongoing subversion, of plotting to overthrow their divinely appointed producer-director and launch another commune. He suspects even the company's brightest light, its Bernhardt. Sonia Morel, glorious Sonia, beautiful Sonia, whose closet this is, who has been killed on our stage more than 10,000 times. I keep the books, and I know. Binet. I did not know at first that André Delord was a playwright. At the time I knew little of theatre, though I found it prudent several times a season to go on display in my box at the opera. André was a patient of my embarrassingly earnest colleague Dr Matenier, who would have had a prominent career had he not squandered so much of his time on patients. Matenier called the case the most absolute death fixation in his experience and, in despair, sent André to me. In our first consultation, I saw that André would never be cured. He enjoyed the process of analysis too much. He perched on the edge of his chair like an excited child, eyes wide behind his spectacles, and gazed raptly at me as if I were the only visible object in the room. Later I saw this expression on the faces of actors standing in the dark awaiting their cue. 
He showed a rude lack of interest in the framed certificates and testimonials all around, however prominent and well-lighted. I waited with steepled fingers until the silence became unprofitable. Then I sighed and took up my pen. Let us suppose, Monsieur de Lourdes, that you have a free afternoon in Paris. It's a lovely spring day. What would you do to pass the time? Where would you go? Oh, any of several places, Doctor. Let's see. Well, recently I've been spending much of my spare time in the Place de la Nation. Could you be more specific? Do you shop, stroll, do you feed the birds? I walk about and I think about the guillotines. Pardon? The guillotines. That plaza was the site of most of the executions during the terror. Yes, but the terror was a long time ago. I know, Doctor, but, well, while I'm walking, I try to imagine what it must have been like. Oh, I've seen executions in our modern day. I've accompanied my friend Max, who once worked for the police commissioner. But today only vile criminals are executed, and the atmosphere is so sterile, like the removal of a gangrenous limb in an operating room. Do you follow? I'm not sure, Monsieur de Lord. You may call me André. I simulated gratitude. André, thank you. Please continue. The atmosphere, you say, is sterile? Not so much sterile, I suppose, as drab. The bureaucrats in their dusty grey suits, the mumbling priest, the journalists smoking and doodling rude pictures in their notebooks. Everyone, even the condemned man, looks bored going through the motions, ready for everything to be over. There's not even as much blood as one would expect. The very arteries seem inhibited. And this differs from the terror Oh, yes, as the name implies, the prisoners went screaming to the stocks and a thousand throats cheered each spurt of crimson. The old regime was a hydra and its coils spasmed for months after the first head had been severed. Each execution was a separate pageant, unlike any before or since. What an imagination! You envision all this, walking there with your hat and cane, with the newsboys yelling and the traffic roaring past... André smiled and shrugged. Yes, it is silly, but I confess it. Call me a sentimentalist. Do you call yourself a sentimentalist? No, but do you know what I read out this just this week, Doctor? I read that puppeteers waited beside the guillotines to drag the corpses across the plaza to small stages made of pushed-together cheese crates. There they performed impromptu satiric plays, working the bodies like life-sized puppets. He sprang to his feet and stuck out both elbows, letting his forearms dangle, and did a loping dance about my office. His head flopped about as if his neck had indeed been severed. Here is the Merry Marquis, dancing at the ball. Oh, how the crowd laughed. I clapped slowly, forcefully, holding my arms aloft as if I were at the opera. You are most vivid and convincing, André. You should go on the stage. His face fell and he sat down heavily. Acting! Pah! I am no actor. His tone reeked of contempt. Forgive me, I meant no offence. What's your profession, André? I am a playwright. He leaned forward, fixing me with a Jacobean stare. 
and I am looking, Dr. Bidet, for a collaborator. Thus it began. I provided Andre with case studies of the wretches I have treated in the lunatic asylums of France, and he turned their madness into melodrama. And so the brilliant Dr. Michel Binet, director of the Psychological Physiological Laboratory of the Sorbonne, became a technical advisor to a back-alley theatre in Montmartre, the Grand Guignol. André Delorde, a fevered scribbler, saw his name in lights while I saw my name on the back of the programme, listed in small type with the milliners who designed the hats and the slaughterers who filled the buckets with grue. I allowed my resentment to grow, swell, fester. And now, thanks to André's unfortunate turn for the worse, I may at last claim a share of the credit I have so long deserved. Sonia. I could be at the theatre, Antoine, the Odeon, the Gymnase, the Vaudeville, the Ambigu, even the Comédie Française. Why not? I could be playing Portia, Roxanne, Antigone. But no, I'm throttled nightly by a bellowing beery lout on a stage smaller than Max's bed. You witch! You strumpet! You will never leave me again! Paul, what are you doing with that wire? Keep away from me, keep away. You left our baby to die, you slut. Paul, no, no, I Die, die. <coughs> that blood is coming out very, very nicely indeed. Max's voice in the dark is as bodiless and satisfied as God's. Near the back row, his cigarette glows. Eugenie used a bit more glycerin in the mix tonight, Max. Wait till you see how well it clots. Thank you, Camille. I look forward to it. Sonia, my dear, could you thrash your downstage leg a bit more? The front row will demand refunds en masse if they don't feel endangered. That's better. Your grimace, Octave, is much improved. You've studied the gargoyles, as I suggested, yes? Yes. Can you hear that scrap of dialogue again? Let's return to where should we resume, Camille? Um, you left our baby to die, you slut. Yes, from there, please, Octave. You left our baby to die, you... <coughs> Octave, that's Sonia's line. Octave crumpled, hands jammed into his groin. And you'll get another one just like it, I shouted, if you ever again try to grope me on stage, you bastard. I slung the prop wire into the wings, beribboning the curtains with blood. Octave whimpered. Sonia, my dear, our company is small and our resources limited. I must urge you not to kill any of your fellow performers until the season is over. Max, my dear, you're a miserable piece of shit. I strode into the wings, shouldering aside poor little Eugenie, who cowered behind her cauldron of blood. I entered my dressing room, slammed the door and righted the vanity mirror. I made fists and bounced on the balls of my feet. I bared my teeth like an ape, screwed shut my eyes, strained all my muscles, and hummed my rage. Why do I stay? Max believes for love of art. The company believes for love of Max. Love. I love neither as much as I would love a role that did not require me to be strangled or boiled or gutted like a fish twice each evening, plus matinees. Most of all, I would love a dressing room in which I could actually pace, large enough for me to admit more than one admirer at a time. 
One night, King Carol of Romania and his mistress, Mademoiselle Lupescu, came backstage to offer their compliments on my performance in The Merchant of Corpses. Deposed monarchs require even larger retinues than active ones. Their fiefdoms are rented suites and the lackeys who fill them. And so three rows of the theatre empty to follow His Majesty and the Mademoiselle into the dim and grimy corridors. I was forced to receive them in the passageway. Mademoiselle Lupescu could not precede the king into any room and the king could not enter a woman's dressing chamber without a chaperone, as if I had space and air enough for a tryst. If His Majesty could manoeuvre that expertly, he would not be in exile. Even intimacy is too ambitious in this snuffbox. I've given up on Max. At the theatre, his response is always the same. What more will you demand of me, he moans. He flings his hand outwards, palms up as if to receive the nails. Are you not already renowned? Do you know what the newspapers call you? The high priestess of the Temple of Horror. As if this is a compliment. Away from the theatre, at his flat or at mine, Max has a different stock response, one more enjoyably physical, but it leaves my situation equally unresolved. Here are more flowers. From Charles, no doubt. Poor Charles. He thinks his infatuation is so well hidden. He's as flamboyant in his quiet way as Max. He wants the drama of being a secret admirer. I'm tempted to encourage him a little, but at this point in my life I need something more tangible than mute longing. Perhaps, indeed, something more than Max. I've told no one my vow. If I don't get a good notice from a serious reviewer this season, I'll quit the company, and Max as well, ululate though he will. In the meantime, I'm at least learning new aspects of my craft. Eugenie is teaching me some of her more elaborate makeup tricks. The child really is talented. If I ever get to play Cordelia, I can also act as technical advisor to whoever gouges out Gloucester's eyeballs. More bounce, more bounce. I will not become hysterical. Eugenie. Some nights, Charles and I are the only ones left in the building, and he's kind enough to walk me home. I always finish my work first. Max leaves him quite a list. I push open the thick oak doors to the theatre proper. I have to lean with my whole body to budge them, and I sit in the middle toward the back where Max sits during rehearsals. I sit in the dark and wait for the outlines of the stage, the seats, the beams in the ceiling to appear to resolve themselves into outlines of black and grey. It's a curious thing. When I'm not in my apartment, I have difficulty remembering what it looks like, even where it is. I keep the address pinned to the inside of my sleeve on a folded scrap of butcher's paper, just in case. But I can always summon every pulley, every lamp, every alcove in this theatre. I don't need light to study their details. I asked Max once whether I could simply move my few belongings into the theatre, into the garret above the balcony, but he made popping noises and fluttered his hands and said it would not be proper. Surely he knows that I virtually live here already. I certainly live nowhere else. If I were able to sit here in the dark long enough, if there were enough hours in the night, I'm sure I eventually would be able to see not only the broad strokes of my surroundings, but the most minute flourishes carved into the farthest corner of the ceiling. It's all a matter of concentration. 
and at the same time of relaxing so that the images come to you rather than straining yourself to meet them halfway. One night, as the theatre formed around me, one swatch of darkness became the shape of a man and I recognised the spectacles of Monsieur de Lourdes. He was sitting in the next row, facing the stage. They say no place on earth is quite as dark as a darkened theatre, he said. This frightens many people, Eugenie, not you? No, monsieur, I couldn't recall his addressing me before. That's good, because at this time of night, in a darkened theatre, one can hear the most remarkable things if one is open to hearing them. Did you know, Eugenie, that this building was once a convent? Yes, monsieur. Charles, um, I mean monsieur Gouzeron, told me it had been gutted during the terror. This hall used to be the chapel, and that's why angels are carved into the ceiling. Monsieur Gouzeron, I mean Charles, is quite correct. I would share with you another part of that history, Eugenie, but I fear it would mean you're following me upstairs into the balcony. Upon my honour, he added, raising his hand, I mean you no harm and I will maintain my distance. I was sure he could feel the warmth of my embarrassment, even if he could not see its colour. Oh, I do not doubt you, monsieur. I will follow you. We climbed the narrow stairs which spiral up a chimney-like brick shaft. The darkness of the balcony was, if anything, more absolute than that below. Monsieur de Lourdes sat, and so did I, at a proper distance of several feet. For many minutes we said nothing, only sat and looked at the oblong space above the stage. I believe that before I actually heard the murmuring, I felt it in my neck and arms, which prickled as if charged with electricity. The burbling was as faint as a trickle of water within the walls during a, th a rainstorm, but there was no rain this night. The sounds had the tone and timbre of human speech, but the words, if words they were, were inaudible. I thought of Charles's mumblings as he tallied figures in Max's ledger. What is that sound, monsieur? This was their convent, and they're still here, still praying for us all. Monsieur de Lourdes' voice was hushed. Even during the uproar of performances, while this balcony is jammed with patrons, I can sit in this spot and hear the sisters. The terror continues, and so do the prayers. Far from being frightened, I felt oddly consoled, as one feels when hearing a distant train. I was smiling when the lights came on. Charles was standing at the switch box just inside the doorway below. There you are, Eugenie. Hello, André. My, you're a fine pair. Claiming your seats early for this weekend show. He laughed and swept a shock of hair out of his face. Keep sitting up there in the dark like that, he said, and you'll both be seeing things. The murmuring had become so muted that my breathing drowned it out, but it continued soft and frolicsome inside my ears. Max I marvel that I can go on. Dr. Binet tells me that poor André no longer is well enough to see any of his friends, that he wanders the cemetery like a spectre, hardly eating, and, worst of all, unable to write. Binet has been kind enough to pass me drafts of a play he himself is writing, The Maker of Monsters. Everyone is a playwright. Soon the concierges and street crowd drivers will be handing me scripts as well. Why does no one aspire to be a director? 
because they watch me study the terrible example that is my life and they learn. Oh, the struggle. Octave has left the company. He said terrible things, blood-curdling things about Sonia. I couldn't bear it. Only three days before we open, we have no one to play Paul Le Hirec, the insane sculptor who strangles his cruel and faithless wife in The Dead Child. Would that I were a dramaturge of ancient Greece, able to recast a play with a shuffling of masks. Would that I were in any other theatre, in any other age, than in this Sisyphean ordeal that occupies me now. Will the very slopes of Montmartre yawn wide to swallow us on opening night? I wouldn't be surprised. The gods are against my endeavour. In the perfection of my art, I have angered the gods. On the other hand, Charles could play the role. Excellent. It's decided. I'll hand him the script today, and Sonia will rehearse with him tonight. All night, if necessary. Perhaps at her flat, where they will have some privacy. Charles will make the usual excuses but I will not be swayed. Charles. I woke sweating, naked and disoriented in a close and sultry bedchamber, sheets tangled about my legs. I sat up, startled, felt my stomach lurch and lay down again, breathing deeply with my eyes closed. The sheets I lay upon were soothing, damp and cool, and I focused on the thin intersection of flesh and fabric, enjoying the contours of my body. I returned to the borderland between waking and sleeping, and wraiths of the evening before coiled around me. My body remembered before my mind how my night had been spent, a soreness in my upper arms and shoulder blades, an unusual coarseness in the play of my tongue along my palate, a detached numbness in my twitching penis. Eventually, the room reshaped itself around the absent figure of Sonia, and then I remembered all and smiled. I sat up, slowly this time, waited a few seconds for my dizziness to pass, and padded unclothed to the doorway, where I looked across the sunny common room of a top-floor flat. At the far wall stood Sonia, with her back to me, bent over a countertop, intent on some project that she blocked with her body. She wore an abundant purple gown as generous as the matted sheets I had left behind. Its drape revealed one bare shoulder. Her russet hair, streaked with grey, roamed long and loose. If I walked up behind her and clasped her, her hair would enfold me down to my thighs. I moved softly across the room, my memory of the bedroom hours narrowing and intensifying this daytime moment, and just as I reached for her, she turned and smiled and held up her right forearm to show that where her hand had been was a jagged, bleeding stump, flesh tattered, bone splintered and shining in the morning light. I screamed and lunged backward, falling, bruising my lower back as I hit the window sill. I twisted and leaned out over the boulevard, my arms numb as I shuddered and heaved. Then her arms were around me and her hands, both hands, were caressing my forehead, my cheeks, my chin. And Sonia was saying, it's makeup, that's all. It's one of Eugenie's tricks she's been teaching me. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, what was I thinking? I'm fine, Sonia's fine. I slowly hauled myself into the room, leaving damp handprints in the grime of the windowsill, and sank to the floor, sobbing into her shoulder, my erection wedged between us like a lever.
Andre. Eugenie came to see me today. She found me leaning against Oscar Wilde's tomb, making notes towards an article on fear in literature. The sunlight becomes her. I could not recall ever seeing her before outside the walls of the Grand Guignol. I was amazed but delighted to see her small, pale head cresting the hill, a breeze lifting what hair she has left. Why do young women crop their tresses so? I pocketed my notes on Poe and Baudelaire, stood, removed my hat and bowed from the waist, not once but twice. Good afternoon, mademoiselle, I said. I trust you're well. The enthusiasm of my greeting flustered her and disconcerted me. Before I could make amends, she thrust at me a package wrapped in brown paper. I hope you will not think me forward, Monsieur de Lourdes, but please accept this gift from your friends in the Rue Chaptal. I could think of nothing to say, so I bowed again, took the package and gestured her onto a bench. I gently shook the package as I sat beside her. I'm surprised that Max has time for such gestures in the final week of dress rehearsals. I slit the adhesive with a fingernail and began unfolding the paper. Monsieur, I must confess, Max knows nothing of this. I was building some props and this one, well, this one turned out so fine that I felt I should present it to someone. I smoothed out the paper, revealing an ornate dagger of Chinese design. It's lovely, I said. Fake, I hope. Oh, yes, monsieur, and with the usual spring blade. She slid the dagger gently from my lap, raised it above her head, and with surprising force drove it to the hilt into her forearm. Then she lifted it slowly, allowing the dull and retractable blade to slip back out of the hilt that had concealed it. The illusion was flawless, as always. Wonderful, I said, as she gravely handed back the weapon. The dagger is not loaded, monsieur. I did not want to risk fouling your clothes, but here in the hilt is the reservoir that holds the blood as much as a pint. Such craftsmanship. Dr. Binet will be impressed as well. I'll show it to him when he next visits. Oh, monsieur, I beg you, don't tell Dr. Binet I was here. He will be at our opening Friday night and he will be so angry. Him? Angry? Whatever are you talking about, child? Dr. Binet said that none of us were to contact you under any circumstances. He said your, your treatment required complete isolation, a break with his theatrical past, he called it. How extraordinary! I stood and walked a few deliberate paces onto the gravel, like a lone duelist. What then has Binet been doing with the manuscript of our latest collaboration? the adaptation of the de Maupassant story about the awful woman who turns her babies into monsters. Is it locked away in a lab at the Sorbonne? Has he not been passing the pages to Max as they're completed? Eugenie frowned. Collaboration, monsieur? Dr. Binet has brought Max a manuscript, yes, but he says it's his own work. He says your illness prevents you from writing. Oh, I've said too much, she said, standing. I've upset you, monsieur. You're all a quiver, like the doctor at the climax of The Kiss of Blood. Please forgive me. I've spoken out of turn. Not at all, Eugenie, not at all. I mopped my face with my handkerchief and took deep breaths, calming myself so as not to frighten the girl. I thank you so much for the gift, Eugenie, and for visiting me today. 
I wonder, could I ask you to bring me one thing more? Of course, monsieur. I held the dagger before me. Might I have some blood with which to load this? Sonia. Opening night. My God, what next? Max and I were preparing ourselves in our usual superstitious way, perhaps indiscreetly, behind some balsa wood trees backstage. I looked up and there was Charles, pale and staring. I was going to have a conversation with him anyway, after what happened at my flat the other night. Oh, the folly, what was I thinking? But I didn't want him to find out like this. And now, five minutes before the curtain, Charles is pacing and mumbling and rolling his eyes, ignoring all my entreaties and explanations. A frightening display. The stagehands think he's merely preparing for his role, but I wonder whether he'll make it through the performance. I wonder whether I will. Georges Choisy on theatre. A daring new realism at the Grand Guignol. The World Final Edition, 21.9.25. In recent months, much of the dramatic press in this most dramatic of cities has been devoted to new trends towards realism on our stages. We've seen a decided shift in dialogue this season, for example, from witty bourgeois repartee to rough, often crude street argot, sometimes with electrifying results. No recent evening of realistic theatre, however, has so impressed this reviewer as tonight's season premiere at a most unlikely location, that venerable temple of horror, the theatre of the Grand Guignol. All the more remarkably, this overwhelming impression was made in the final minutes of the night's entertainment. Producer-director Max Mitchin, with the daring of a master showman, began the evening in routine and traditional fashion, a series of short playlets of horror and broad comedy, including A Crime in the Madhouse, a new ghastliness from the clotted pen of André Delorde. This included a particularly repellent eye-gouging in which the liberated orbs actually bounced into the front row, causing much commotion. So far, nothing to disconcert or surprise the dedicated guignoliers who roared and retched with their customary verve. The climax of the evening, however, was something else entirely. Monsieur Michin and Delord have newly shod a warhorse of their repertoire, The Dead Child, the story of a grief-maddened sculptor and his faithless wife. The new production eliminates all the violence but intensifies by many orders of magnitude the emotional power. After a cataclysmic speech denouncing the perfidy of woman, the sculptor collapses, howling in wordless grief and rage. Dazed, the wife slowly reaches out to him, holds him, and then her own tears come. The sight of the devastated couple, the raving sculptor and his penitent wife, sobbing together in the centre of the stage, holding each other with taut desperation as if encircling arms could possibly join the shards of their sundered lives, is a sight this reviewer will never forget. Nor, I suspect, will the majority of tonight's audience. The silence was as profound as that of a tomb. Never had the patrons seen such naked emotion laid bare in the theatre. 
the tatty backdrops, the prompter's box, the elbows rubbing my own to right and left, all dropped away like canvas scenery, and for a few anguished seconds I forgot my situation and believed I was beholding a heartbreak as real and as wrenching as any I have experienced myself. At the curtain the applause was thunderous, the actors themselves seemed dazed as they emerged for a bow with the rest of the company. As the sculptor, Charles Goudron made a stunning Paris debut. As the wife, Guignol veteran Sonia Morel, who so often sparkles in otherwise dull vehicles, proved herself worthy of comparison even to the great Bernhardt. One glows at the thought of the life force that Mademoiselle Morel would give to the role of Antigone. But the evening's revels were not ended. The lights came up, the patrons stood and rummaged for their belongings, and then the final, ultimate act of realistic drama took place in the very aisles of the theatre itself, without the reassuring distance of a stage. Two shouting men began grappling with one another in the middle of the seat. When one of the men drew a dagger, I was at first frightened and tempted to summon the police. Then I was thrilled beyond words to recognise the assailant as none other than Monsieur de Lourdes himself and to realise that this must be a wonderfully satiric climax staged in the midst of the patrons. This brief playlet ended comically. In true guignol fashion, de Lourdes shouted, Die, Binet, die! and shoved his dagger into the chest of his gibbering partner, spraying a geezer of stage blood. After staring at the protruding hilt that quivered in the bubbling wound, the victim, wonderful reversal of expectations, seemed to recover instantaneously. He fairly galloped up the aisle, yelling as he went, Madman! Insane! Help! Help! I'm told the performance continued throughout the foyer, out the front door and onto the pavement outside until the gifted actor, whose name I regret was unavailable at press time, had vanished into the promenading crowds of the Rue Chaptal. Max Our new season is a triumph. Sonia is radiant and she and I test repeatedly the capacities of her dressing room. Charles is a matinee idol, standing in the stage door and signing autographs for crowds of adoring young women. A new gaiety fills the blind alley where patrons once stumbled only to vomit. Happily, this tradition continues as well. Eleven last night, by Camille's count, a record. When the weather is bad, André and Eugenie spend an afternoon in the cemetery, stalking hand in hand among the tombs, visiting all their favourite dead. He and I, meanwhile, are at each other's throats on the staging of The Maker of Monsters, though Eugenie assures us that the plural of the title is not a problem, for she can produce hunchbacked urchins at will. It's like old times. Late at night, André and Eugenie and Sonia and I sit in the balcony, rest from our labours and bask in the murmur of the nuns. We toast the stage with cocktails of bicarbonate and we see in the darkness a capering future, awash with drama and blood. Well, episode number 27, Red Riding Hood's Child by N.K. Jemison, the story of Red Riding Hood's son and a wolf, got some emphatic reactions. 
Not entirely unsurprising, really, considering the subject matter. On the blog, Hyperion said, I couldn't imagine why the story was rated X of all things until it dawned on me that some would go no further than gay wolf porn as their logline, and this way, they can't say they weren't warned. And Little Lotus said, Wow, in some ways I don't know what to think. Homosexual wolves? A smithy with a lust for boys on the verge of manhood and a little old woman protecting his innocence? But that is just what made this story great. This story was well written with 180 degree turns from what I expected, but in a good way. I'm not sure if Little Red would be happy with her son's choice, but at least he's happy. The reading was done exceptionally well. I think that is what really kept me listening. A few commenters were turned off by what they considered pedophilia and even rape, even though the main character is explicitly described as an adolescent. A few felt that even though he was of age and it was consensual, it would have been better had the sex been left implied. On the board, first-time poster Bad Bad Leroy Brown was among the thumbs-down crowd, saying, Note to self, never, ever skip the intro again. Never. And ew. I'm hetero, but pretty sure I wouldn't have enjoyed this if the protagonists were female. The graphic sex didn't really move the story forward. All in all, it was a pretty weak story, offering all the plot one might expect from cheap porn. The only thing that made this fantasy was werewolves. The characters could have been space aliens, elves, or cowboys without changing the story a bit. But Thunderbunny said, You picked the perfect narrator. He had the perfect voice for this. And yes, I'm gay, and I found the sex to be a bit hot. But I was imagining him more in his human-esque form when they were together. Anyway, kudos to the author for stepping outside and having some gay leads. I love my podcast community and the fantasy stories I found out there, and this is the first one that i found to feature a gay-themed story. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen anywhen, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to PodCastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash castle today. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. Doomsday Book is one of Connie Willis's time travel novels and the first book of hers I ever read. I've been an avid fan of hers ever since. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com slash castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Charles Baudelaire said, As a small child, I felt in my heart two contradictory feelings, the horror of life and the ecstasy of life.